before a group of people. Uh, I was in the Marine Corps for 12 years and I uh, picked up Staff Sergeant E6 and as a staff NCO, we was required to give instructions to the troops uh, every so often. And what that would happen is that they had a bulletin board there in our shop. On Monday morning when we come to work, they would post on the board the uh, instructions they want the troops to receive and then they'll have the name of the staff NCO that would be the instructor. And I'd come to work Monday and I'd see my name listed there as the instructor for the week. And I get a really sick feeling. And I just worried about it all week long. And, and then when it came time to give the instructions, I always found something really important that needed to be done at that time. And I'd get somebody to take my place. Never could stand up before a group of people and speak. And then they sent me to the Staff Gun Commission Officer Academy in Quantico, Virginia. In that school, they taught us a number of things, but one of the things they taught us is how to give lectures and how to give instructions. And then at the end of the course, we would be uh, tested and graded on it. We'd have to stand up and give a 15-minute lecture to our classmates, and then we'd be graded. Uh, well, my duty station is in North Carolina, and I'm temporarily going to school in Quantico, Virginia. My family's there in North Carolina. The night before I was to be tested, I called home on the phone to my wife and just cried on the phone. I said, I just can't do this. I was, couldn't sleep that night, couldn't work, worry about it all. And the next day when it came time to give the instruction, the 15 minutes lecture, I messed it up really bad. Just could not do that. But I have learned some things over the year, some of the, some things that helps out a lot. And one of the things that helps more than anything else is if you know what you're talking about, it helps out a whole lot. And you know, we know our testimony better than anybody else. Amen. And that's a good place to start right there. Just share how you come to know the Lord, uh, how you got saved. And you know, and Paul did this often. It's recorded several times in the New Testament, Paul giving his testimony. One of those recorded times is in Acts chapter 22. If you would turn over there with me, I want us to look at it. Uh, where Paul tells about how he got saved. And looking at this testimony in Acts chapter 22, we could actually break it down to four parts to this testimony that I believe that every good testimony should have these four parts in it. Uh, the first part of his testimony in verse 4, Acts 22 verse 4, he said, And I persecuted this way unto the death, binding and delivering into prison both men and women. And, and jump over to verse 19. He said, I said, Lord... They know that I imprison and beat in every synagogue them that believe on thee. And when the blood of thy martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by, consenting unto his death, and kept the raiment of them that slew him. And so Paul talks about how he's a sinner persecuting God's people. And so when we give our testimony, it doesn't do any good to tell people how good we are. How we grew up in a Christian family or a Christian country. No, Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Amen. When the angels announced the birth of Christ, they said, His name shall be called Jesus, for He shall save His people from their sins. And so, uh, even Jesus speaking, He said, Don't think I've come to call the righteous. Right. I've come to call sinners unto repentance. Amen. And so it's sinners that Christ saves. And that's what men need to hear. And so Paul gives his testimony talking about how he was a sinner persecuting God and God's people. Then the second part of his testimony, he talks about how he was convicted of his sin, that God convicted him. Look at verse 6. And it came to pass that as I made my journey, was come nigh unto Danachus about noon, suddenly shone from heaven a great light round about me. 
and I fell upon the ground, and I heard a voice saying unto me, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And so you see that Paul's sin was that he was persecuting God's people. But now we see that the God convicts him of that sin. And so it is with us, there is no salvation apart from the conviction Amen. of the Holy Spirit. Amen. There must have been a time in your life that you were convicted of sin. Uh, the I thought Jeannie was getting up leaving. She got mad at me. Got up and left. <laughs> messes, messes me all up. Now, now i got to start all over. <laughs> but uh, the, there must be that time in your life that the Holy Spirit of God convicted you of your sin Amen. and your need for Christ. And uh, then the third part of his testimony, uh, it was he talks about how he surrenders his life to the Lord. And you see in verse 10, it says, And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said unto me, Arise and go into Damascus, and there shall be told thee all things which are appointed for thee to do. And so the Bible tells us in Romans 10, 13, Whosoever shall Amen. call upon the name of the Amen. Lord shall be saved. And so Paul calls upon the Lord and says, Lord, what would you have me to do? And so there must be a time in your life that you actually surrendered your life to the Lord. Amen. You called upon Him for salvation. That you realize you are a sinner. The Holy Spirit convicted you of a, uh, that you wanted to, something better than what you were living. Amen. Uh, a life of sin. And then you ask Christ to come in and save you and make you a new person, a new creature. And then the fourth part of his testimony is where he talks about the purpose that God saved you. You see, when God saves us, he saves us for our purpose. That's he has right. a work for us to do. Right. He saves us for that work. Uh, look at verse 21. It says, And he said unto me, Depart, for I will send thee far hence unto the Gentiles. You see, God saw that the Gentiles needed the gospel. That's right. And so he saves Paul to become the apostle to the Gentiles. And so it is when God saves us, he picks the work out first. There's a ministry, there's a work that needs to be done. He saves us for that work. Amen. So if you're saved, you should be able to share what that work is that God saved you for. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. Uh, maybe you've memorized that verse. It's a good verse to memorize. It says, For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourself is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so... Uh, we as Baptists, we understand this very clearly that you're saved by grace. Amen. Amen. You're not saved by joining a church or by being baptized or by going to confession, but you're saved by the grace of God Amen. through faith. But right after God tells us that we're saved by grace through faith, look what he says in verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God has before ordained, that we should walk in them. Notice that it says that we're created in Christ Jesus, or we're born again, we're saved unto good works. That's, That's right. what God saved us for. Amen. And so if we're saved, then that means there's a good work that he saved us for. That's right. Look at the latter part of that verse. It says, which God has before ordained, that we should walk in them. Uh, before, before he saved us. Before he saves us, he's already ordained a work. He picks the work out first, then he saves us for that work. 
Amen. So in our testimony, we should be able to share, whether it's teaching Sunday school or preaching or missionary, passing out tracts or uh, home, home Bible studies or praying for missionaries. Or in order to be able to say, this is my ministry. Amen. This is what God saved me for. Good. And uh, every one of us uh, should be. Uh, I Look at um, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11. Says he gave some, I believe he's speaking of the church here. He said he gave some or some churches. He gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Notice it says that God has given the church a pastor for the purpose of perfecting the saints to do the work of the ministry. Notice it is the job of the saints to do the work of the ministry. Not the job of the pastor. The job of the pastor is to perfect the saints so they might do the work of the ministry. Now, if you're saved, you are a saint. Amen? Amen. My pastor used to say, either you're a saint or you ain't. And so, uh, uh, if you're saved, you're a saint. But you know, there are some religions that teaches that saints are dead Christians. And sometimes it appears that way. But I, I like what the little boy said when he came to church and he saw the glass-stained windows and he kept looking over there and he says, Daddy, who are the people in the windows? And the daddy looked over and he said, well, those are the saints. And the boy kept looking at them and thinking about it. And after a while he says, Daddy, I know who the saints are. They are the people that lets the light in. Now I like that a whole lot better, amen. The amen. That's the light in. They're the ones that does the work of the, of the ministry, the work uh, that the God has given us. And so it's not the job of the pastor to go out on visitation or to go home Bible studies or go knock on door, pass out tracts. That's the job of the saints. Now, he may do these things, but he doesn't do it because he's a pastor. He does it because he's a saint also. Amen. Amen. All saints will be busy uh, in the work of the ministry. Amen. I like to take Paul's outline of his testimony and just use it to share with you in the next few moments my own testimony, if I may. But let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer and you pray with me and for me. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for thy love. We thank you for Jesus Christ that died on the old rugged cross for our sins. God, we thank you for the Holy Spirit that's here to convict us of our sins, to teach us, to guide us, to direct us, to comfort us, to always be there. We thank you for your promise of never to leave us, nor forsake us. And God, we thank you for the uh, your great and wonderful salvation, this eternal life that we can never lose. And God, we just thank you for it. Thank you for this church. And God, I pray that Lord, if you'll meet with us in the next few moments, we know you've promised to never leave us, don't forsake us. But God, we pray that you'll be with us in a very special way, moving and stirring up our hearts. And God, I pray that Lord, as I speak from without, that the Holy Spirit of God will speak from within. Hey. Just speak to our hearts and have your sweet way in our hearts and lives. And God, I pray that by chance, if there is someone sitting among us that doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, I pray the Holy Spirit of God will move and stir in my heart, convict them of their sin, their need for Christ, that they might repent and give their life to Jesus and experience that great and wonderful salvation. God, Amen. we pray you'll just work in all of our hearts tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 I grew up in East Texas. Uh, this is not East Texas, is it? <laughs> East Texas where I grew up. Up in, it's north of here, a little ways. North, uh, east of here, 60 miles from Shreveport, Louisiana. 
the county is Shelby County. Uh, we lived way back in the woods, 20 miles from the high school I attended, over a mile to our closest neighbor, way back in the woods. And my stepfather was an alcoholic that stayed drunk most of the time. And when I was 16 years old, I got in a fight with my stepfather and left home. And I hitchhiked down to New Orleans and joined the Merchant Marines. That was in 1967. Uh, there was a lot of kids that left home out in the streets. And the government started programs to get these kids some type of skill or training. And I went into the Merchant Marines under a government-sponsored program at 16 years old. Uh, had a little school down in New Orleans. But when I got down to New Orleans, uh, I was shocked. I had never seen anything like that in my life. Like I said, I grew up in the woods. Uh, uh, Jeannie and I would own a, take our 22 rifle and, and we'd uh, hike back up in the woods try to shoot a deer. The only problem was, back in those days, they didn't have no deer in the woods. You never saw a deer. And then, uh, but now you can't drive down the road without running over one. I mean, I, I just grew up in the wrong time. And, uh, uh, but the, uh, you know, I thought homosexuality was just dirty talk that boys did. I would never dream that anything like that existed. But I got down to New Orleans and it was all over the place. Homosexuality, the prostitutes, the drugs, the, the strip joints, the nightclubs, uh, the, the, all the good stuff. And a 16-year-old kid away from home trying to learn about the world all he could. Getting about, we'd sneak into the strip joints there and, and, and get in trouble and stuff. And after a while there in New Orleans, they finally sent us to San Francisco to another school Borders in a boarding house in the dirtiest part of San Francisco. And it made New Orleans look like a family town. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was just unbelievable, the sin and the corruption and the wickedness of that city. And then after a while there, uh, got on a ship uh, in the Mercedes and was able to ship out and went to the Far East, went to uh, Vietnam, Japan, and Hong Kong. And our ship pulled into Subic Bay Navy Base. was the largest U.S. Navy base in the Pacific at that time. The Vietnam War was at its height in 67. They were using the city of that, uh, where that base was for an R&R &R city, where rest and relaxation for the Vietnam uh, Marines and Navy. They had sent them over there for two weeks of vacation. That city had earned a reputation among the U.S. Navy as the sin city of the world, the Sodom and Gomorrah of our day. It was just unbelievable. 20,000 prostitutes and the nightclubs and strip joints and the drugs, everything you could imagine there, 16-year-old kid out getting. In the period of time I was away from home, about 18 months, I was put in jail three times. But after a while, it seemed like this had gotten old real quick. And I got to think, you know, there and think there's got to be something better to life than this. Hangovers, uh, the drugs, the, the nightclub, the, the beer joints, the pool hall fights and stuff. And thought that got to be something better. And so I decided I was going to try to straighten up, go back home, go back to school and graduate from high school. And I had determined that my highest goal in life was that I was going to graduate from high school no matter what. So I went back home, like I said, I've been away for 18 months, started back as a sophomore. Now I would have three years to do before I could graduate, and it was rough, still living in a home with a drunk stepfather, still having problems. My senior year, I left again, but this time I moved in with a classmate so I could finish school out. But then when I graduated in 1972, it was like a big letdown. I accomplished my highest goal in life. Now what do I do? You know, go back out there in that world of sin, and, and, and uh, there's just 
got a job working five days a week, just waiting for the weekend so you can go off and party and drunk and wake up with hangovers. And uh, so I had some friends that I graduated from high school with that wanted to go into the U.S. Marine Corps. The Vietnam War was still going on, 1972 now, and um, I was uh, thinking, well, that would be the thing to do. We could go off to war and fight. And so I joined the uh, Marine Corps, got stationed in boot camp uh, in San Diego. And when we checked into boot camp, they issued us a lot of different equipment. But among some of the things they issued us was a little New Testament Bible and a little pen light. And, and I remember when they handed that little New Testament, I was thinking, you know, I heard all kinds of religious arguments growing up. My mother's side of the family was United Pentecostal. My mother's, uh, my father's side uh, of the family was Church of Christ. My mother's side was United Pentecostal. I hear people argue, say, well, the Bible says this, or the Bible says that. And I was thinking when they handed me that New Testament, you know, I don't have to listen to people tell me what the Bible says. I could just read it for myself. Amen. And I was determined that I was going to read that New Testament from the beginning to the end, slow, thorough, meditating on it, find out exactly what it was teaching. And I started reading it. And as I would read it, it got where I couldn't put it down. I wanted to read it every chance I got. I take that little pen light I had. At nighttime, when the lights went out in the barracks, I covered my head up with a blanket and take that little pen light and read another hour or two every night. Just couldn't put it down. Uh, I'd take the little New Testament and carry it in my pocket everywhere as I went. The Marines, they have this thing they like to do. It's always rushing. We call it hurry up and wait. Hurry up and wait. Always rushing. Hurry, hurry. And then when you finally get over where you're going, you have to sit around and wait. And when our drill instructors made us carry our Marine Corps manual underneath our shirt everywhere as we went. And so these times when we were sitting around having to wait, we'd put, he'd have us pull it out and study it. And I'd take my Marine Corps manual, pull it out, but I'd reach in my pocket and pull that little New Testament out and lay it right in front of it, and I'd read it another hour or two, uh, or read it every time uh, I, I, we had that time to stop. You know, I didn't do real good on my Marine Corps test when it came time for our testing, but I did get my Bible read. I read the New Testament through three times over while I was in boot camp. And I, like I said, I, I just couldn't, God would just speak to me. And then you know, I got, I felt like a desire that I, I get uh, reading the Sermon of the Mouth, the teachings of Jesus and things, and I kept thinking, can somebody live this way? Can it really be done? Now, and I felt a desire that if it could be done, if somebody could live this way, I wanted to be that person. I wanted to be a Christian. And so in formation right behind me, everywhere as we went, there was a, a private uh, recruit there in boot camp with me that had claimed to be a United Pentecostal preacher before coming into boot camp. And so when I read something and I have a question, I'd ask the preacher and he explained things to me. And so and I had this desire, uh, you know, wanting to be a Christian. I asked, well, how did I become a Christian? And what do I need to do? And he said, look, if you're going to be a good Christian and get to go to heaven, what you got to do is stop all your sinning right now and the rest of your life never sin again. And if you get to the end of your life without sinning, you get to go to heaven. And I thought, man. I don't know if I've ever met a Christian before in my life. I said, you sure you can do that? He said, sure you can. I said, don't you think you can live five minutes without sinning? I said, well, maybe five minutes. He said, well, if you can live five minutes without sinning, just live another five minutes just like you did that five minutes. And you did keep doing that until you live an hour without sinning. You live an hour without sinning, live another hour just like that. A day, a week, a month until you finally live your life without sinning and you get to go to heaven. 
Of course, he was the preacher, so I, I began to, and it even appeared to me as if Jesus agreed with him. For Jesus said, be ye perfect as your Father, which is in heaven. So I began to quit all of my sin, quit my smoking and my drinking and cursing. Of course, it was real easy to do in my boot camp. They didn't allow those things in boot camp. So, uh, but you know, we got over to the hospital to get a physical. And 70 of us guys, and uh, we, we, we were had to sit in the hallway on the floor where our back against the wall, half was on one side, half on the other side, waiting for our turn to see the doctor. And while we're out there sitting there waiting, our drill instructors will walk up and down the hallway yelling and cursing and vulgar and filthy language. There's young pretty nurses walking up and down the hallway. And this guy's just yelling all this vulgar and filth out. I leaned over to my Pentecostal buddy friend. I said, man, where I'm from in Texas, men don't talk that way in front of women. Mm -hmm. But you have to realize this is in the 70s. I know things have changed a lot since then. But back then, men just didn't do that. He leans back over to me and he says, where I'm from in Oklahoma, good God and Christian men don't curse at all. I said, what? You don't curse? I thought all men cursed. I thought that was the manly thing to do. You know, I, I thought I would, I'd get to go to heaven because I wouldn't curse in front of the lady. Now he's telling me I can't curse at all. And it seems like every time that I thought trying to be good, thought I was good, God would do something to show me that I was not good. That I just couldn't yeah. measure it up. Well, you know, we came back from the hospital that night and uh, that day and that night, lights went out in the barracks. I covered my head up, took my pen light, started reading. Now, I was already convinced that if you commit adultery or fornication, you deserve to go to hell, amen. I, I realize that and believe you'll go to hell. But I got over there that night reading where Jesus said, if you looked at a woman and lust after her, you've committed adultery already in your heart. You know, we just came back from the hospital with young pretty nurses walking down the hallway. And I said, oh, man, I'm going to go to hell. You know, and it seems like no matter how I tried, I just could not be good enough. Yeah. And, you know, then I got over to Paul's writings and, and really got confused. Paul talked about salvation being free. Yeah. It was a gift. It was a grace. And I reread it and read and think, but how, well, how do I get this free gift? What do I need to do to get the grace of God? And I read, and one night, under the blanket, uh, uh, reading my little pen light, it just seemed like it came clear to me that I realized no matter how hard I tried to be good, I could not be good enough. Amen. Right. I, I needed to say it. Right. I, I, I realized that, uh, that the Bible tells about the wages of sin is death. I had sinned yes. and deserved to die. But then reading it that Jesus Christ went to the cross of Calvary and died, but he committed no sin. That's right. He didn't die for his sins. He died for my sins. I realized that night that my black, wicked, ugly sins was transferred over to Jesus. Right. And Jesus went to the cross hey. of Calvary and Hell. died in my place for my sins. Yeah. But you know, if that's all that Christ did, I may not go to hell, but I wouldn't go to heaven. Because you see, heaven was for perfect people. But that's not all that Christ did. The Bible says he also raised the dead, healed the sick, fed the multitude, and went about doing all manner of good. And after he did all that righteousness, the Bible said he took that white, pure righteousness and imputed it over to me. Amen. I had done it. That's right. Now, now I get to go to heaven, not because I'm good, but because he's good. Hey. Not because I'm perfect, but because he's perfect. Hey. That night I realized, no matter how hard I tried to be 
good or to be a Christian. I could not do it. That's right. I needed a Savior, and that Savior was Jesus Christ. Amen. I got down out of my bunk, got down on my knees beside my right, and prayed and asked Jesus Christ to come into my life. And I talk, the, the, the emotion, the feeling that I felt that time, it's hard to explain, but of course you know how I felt. You got saved, amen? Amen. I wanted to jump up and run up and down in that parish <laughs> just hollering, but I couldn't do that. But you see, that was another thing they did not allow in Marine Corps boot camp. So I held it back until I was home on leave. But when I got home on leave, I was telling everybody about yeah. it. I was telling everybody about Jesus. We, you know, we got some, some of the guys, they wanted to hear some uh, war stories. You know, I just got out of boot camp, and we went out to an old camp house out in the woods, stay up all night talking. So I had taken me a, a little notebook and would write down verses that would speak to me. And I'd get it real excited about a verse. I'd copy it on my little notebook. And I didn't say anything about the verse. I just copied it word for word. I had started copying uh, way back in the first grade. I copied the little girl's paper right beside me all the time. And I, I turned the paper in. The teacher said to me, Teddy, you copy Susie's paper. And I said, well, how do you know I copy Susie's paper? She says, because when you copied her heading, you copied her name right along with it. That's all I did is just copy these verses down my notebook. And I'd carry that notebook with me all the time. We were out in the old camp house sitting around that night talking. And I pulled my notebook out. I said, here, I want to show you a verse that I got out of the Bible. And I and I tried to tell them what it, I thought it meant and what it meant to me. And they started calling me a preacher then. I said, I'll never be a preacher. I couldn't stand up before a group of people and speak. But I can tell my buddies what Jesus Christ Amen. You know, I believe this is what happens when a person gets saved. I used to think, how can you tell somebody who really got saved? Will they stop their smoking when they get saved? Will they stop their drinking when they get saved? You know, I've seen Christians that, uh, and I believe they're Christians, but they just do some things that I, I just don't think Christians are to do. Maybe you've seen that too, you know? And, and I wonder, but there ought to be something that happens when a person gets saved Amen. to tell that they're a Christian. Amen. You know, uh, you know, if you uh, uh, up there, where I'm uh, I, from there, Shelby County, I visit some of the churches there, some of the Baptist churches, you won't believe this, but I've seen it. Some Baptists smoking cigarettes. Now, I know that's hard to believe, but I'm not lying. I've seen it, amen. And, uh, <laughs> but you go up north, you go up north, the, the people, the Baptists up north, they frown on that real bad. They look down at the south and say, man, are those people saved smoking their cigarettes? Of course, if you go up north now, and you see how those men run around to their swim, go to their swimming holes, and a little old silk panty-like thing, and you think, man, can a man be saved? <laughs> look, if you go over here to Galveston, and you see those men running around half-naked, those people are not Texans. Those were the Yankees that came down. <laughs> but there ought to be a way you can tell. You know, in the Philippines, it's as if everybody steals. I mean, uh, if you got a, a, a house, a, a, they'll have a center block wall built around their property with embedded broken glass in the top of the wall. Then several strings of barbed wires on top of it. Uh, every place of business, McDonald's, any place, will have two security guards with shotguns at the door waiting uh, to keep the thieves out. The thievery is just unreal. I was reading about a, a Japanese businessman that was flying from Tokyo to Manila, and he wanted to know if he was getting close. So what he did, he stuck his arm out the window, 
pulled it back, his watch was gone, he knew he was getting close. <laughs> now, this was told by a Philippine preacher. They, they know it, this is the thing. And you think, can a person be saved and still? I, I don't know, you know, I thought about it and thought, I come to the conclusion, what is happening is that we are convicted of sin, the sins that we are convicted first in our spiritual growth are sins that we grew up believing that was really, really bad. Those were evil, uh, they get victory over those real quick. Other sins, it may take us a while in yes. our spiritual growth yes. to do away with. And for example, we'll do a test here. How many people here, raise your hand, if you have continued to kill people after you got saved? <laughs> Nobody, right? You know why you haven't killed anybody after you got saved? Because you grew up knowing that killing was really bad. Isn't right. It? But, you know, uh, in some uh, cultures, some uh, communities, some things are not looked down on as bad. Like here, you know, where I grew up out there in the woods, uh, you know, uh, Grandma smoked, and Mama smoked, and every, our bus driver put spit platoons on our buses. To, and, you know, all the teenagers, <laughs> we had a designated smoking area behind the ad class that the kids could go smoke, and everybody just grew up that way. So you didn't, the conviction may not be as strong, you know, but uh, of course, as when I was a kid, I, I ain't going out in my underwears outside, no way. <laughs> I was convicted that early in life. But you got different culture. But I thought, they got to be something that's universal. And I believe I found there's something, no matter what culture you grow up in, what part of the world, yeah. it's always the same. And that is that when you get saved, you fall in love with Jesus. Amen. And you want to tell people about Jesus Christ. Amen. In John chapter 1, Jesus talking to Andrew, and Andrew gets saved. And the Bible says he immediately went and got his brother, Simon Peter. Yes, and sir. And brought him to Jesus. A little later on, you'll read Amen. the chapter that Philip gets saved. And the Bible says he straightway went and got Nathan out and brought him to Jesus. Yeah, man. John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman comes to Jacob's well carrying water pots and gets some water. She meets Christ and she gets saved. Yeah, man. The Bible says right after she gets saved, she leaves her water pot, runs down to the city, and begins to tell Amen. Yeah, come, Amen. see a man that told me all that I ever did, and she brought them to Jesus. Uh, there is a story uh, that Jesus tells of. Uh, it's told about Jesus in the Bible where Jesus heals a man, which is a picture of salvation. And after he heals him, he tells him to go and don't tell nobody. Do you remember reading that? He said, don't tell anybody. The next verse says he left and went out and told everybody. Now, I believe that that is in our Bibles for us to see. If, even if God commands you not to tell people about Jesus, that is a command you could not keep. Something happens when you get saved you want to tell people about Amen. Jesus. And the reason why that is, because that's what Jesus saved you. Amen. He saved you to go to work. He saved you to go and tell people about Jesus. In John chapter 17, we would call that chapter the Lord's Prayer. Now, it's not the, the Lord's Prayer that the Roman Catholics may call the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, holy be thy name, thy kingdom come. That prayer would be more correct to call the disciples' prayer. The disciples came to Jesus and said, Lord, teach us how to pray. Yeah. And Jesus said, pray like this. Amen. That was a, a prayer for the disciples. But in John chapter 17, it is the Lord praying. It's a long prayer. He starts off in that prayer addressing the Father. He prays to the Father. In there he says he's praying. He tells who he's praying for. He says, I'm praying for these you've given me. But not only these that you've given me, but those that will be saved by their testimony and witnessing to 
talking about us. He's praying for all Christians. And then in that prayer, he'll point out that he's not lost, that we can't lose our salvation. Amen. We can't eternal life. He says, I, you, those that you've given me, I've lost none. And he's not going to lose any. And, but he's, he's working like an argument in this prayer. The, the, the argument is that, uh, that we're his, we have eternal life, we're saved. And then the, the thought is that, why don't you go to heaven the moment you get saved? It's not it's like, oh, we got to wait around and see if we're going to make it. No. It's not like i got to wait to see if I'm going to hold out. That's right. Because in that prayer, he'll point out that this is not our home. He said, this is not my home. It is not their home. And I go to be with the Father. Amen. And so the logic is they should go be with the Father also. It's not their home. They can't lose their salvation. So why are we hanging around? And in the prayer, he'll go on and he'll say, I pray that you will not take them out of the world. He said, this is not their home, but I pray you wouldn't take them out. Now, the reason why we are not taken out the moment we get saved is because Jesus prayed that we would not be taken out. Amen. He gets his prayers answered. Then he con concludes his prayer by stating why he told, prayed not that we wouldn't be taken. He says, for as you have sent me, so I have sent them. We are left here to do the job that Christ came. Amen. To seek and to save those which are lost. That's, right. that's the only purpose we are here now uh, is to see that we tell people about Jesus Christ. And so uh, that is why that, uh, that immediately we get saved, we have a desire to tell people about the Lord. You know, and like I said, that's what happened to me. I, uh, the whole time I was in the Marine Corps, I, I telling people about the Lord. I go to the barracks on, uh, at night. Uh, I had my family there. We had a house, but I'd go over to the barracks, go in the barracks, and, and go around to every room, talking to the uh, Marines, telling them about and witnessing and, and having people pray and, and people get saved. And I, I ran a church bus on the base. I had a bus, and I, I'd go to Saturday. I'd go to the mess hall, park the bus in front of the mess hall, and I'd stand out in front of the mess hall when people came out and passed out tracks talking with them. And I'd tell them, look, um, why don't you come to church Sunday? And they said, well, I don't have a way to see I said, see that bus right there? I'll, it'll be here tomorrow. And, and uh, right here at that same spot, and you can get on the bus and ride. And uh, I tried to get some of their information. What barracks you live in? I'd write their name down and get it. And then if they didn't show up, I drove over to the bus, uh, uh, to the barracks. And I get in, and I'm a staff sergeant. And they knew I was a staff sergeant. They are privates and PFCs and last I'd go into the barracks, and I'd see them still sleeping. I'd wake them up and say, come on, I'm... Got the bus out here, and I'd help them get dressed, get the clothes, get them home. And it, I'd come in with a, uh, especially the uh, new, right out of boot camp, Paris Island. I had a, a, a drill a, a sergeant friend of mine that got a drill instructor in Paris Island, and a Christian friend of mine. He would send me their orders. When they graduated, he'd send me everybody that's coming to North Carolina, and I'd have their name. I'd go over to the receiving barracks, and I'd find them, and I'd say, well, you're your drill instructor told them to come see you and make sure you got in church. And they'd all come to church, but then, of course, some of them would continue, but a lot of them would realize they didn't have to do that after a few weeks or so. But uh, <laughs> we'd do everything we could to try to reach people in the Lord. Amen. But I, I believe that God had worked in my heart and life even way before I got saved as a 16-year-old kid that I was able to see the Philippines as a lost kid and see all the sins 
and then go back again in 1972 as a Christian and see it in a different light, seeing that people are the superstitious of the Roman Catholic Church and the, the sin, the hurt, and the pain, and see all the street children there. Uh, and God just broke my heart. And I believe God worked in my life. And then in, uh, I went back to uh, uh, 12 years in the Marine Corps, always praying and thinking about it, but then I decided I was going to just get out uh, and go. You know, I asked my pastor uh, about being a missionary. I, I called some mission boards, talked to missionaries that came through, trying to find out how you do this, how do you be a missionary? And I was told in order to be a missionary, you got to go on deputation and raise your support. Well, you know, uh, they were saying it was taking four or five years to raise your support. And, and that's not something I was looking forward to, to go out and, and, and try to get raise money. I want to go over to the Philippines and tell people about Jesus. So what we did, I hadn't taken leave in three years. I had 90 days leave built on the books. And what I did, I took my 90 days leave, the last 90 days of my enlistment. And I made an arrangement when my leave ran out, my enlistment would be over. And they would just mail my discharge to me. But while on leave, we can fly free on a military aircraft. And so we didn't raise any funds for our plane ticket or anything. We uh, uh, flew on a military aircraft. I had six children then, so a family eight. We flew over. My wife's sister met us, had made arrangement for somebody to let us live in a little grass hut out in the jungle area with no running water or electricity or anything, so we didn't have no utility bills, no rent. We lived in this little grass hut. Uh, and I'd take my Bible in the morning, and I'd walk out in the jungle, and i see these little grass huts with large families. I'd go over and start sharing the gospel. People started getting saved. We started a church outside underneath the mango tree at that time. The, uh, the largest blessing. I met the chaplain over at the Navy base. He helped me that we could go to the dump every Saturday to get any material out of the dump we could find. I took scrap wood, old tin roofing and stuff. We built our first church. Everything came out of the dump, our first church that we built out there. And the Lord just took care of us. We were there like three years like that. And um, you know, I kept seeing these little kids uh, laid on the streets and you saw the video where the little girl had the plastic bag up around her face. That's her sniffing glue. They do that on the street kids. They have glue all dried in their face and their hair where they've been sniffing glue all night. And I see all this, and, and my heart just go out to about There was not like a whole lot I could do about it. We're struggling just with our six children. And so after three years, but the problem was we, didn't, we couldn't even get our plane tickets to come back. And, but I had gotten sick. Real bad. I got malaria and uh, hepatitis and uh, everything. Yellow jaundice. My liver was all messed up. I was put in the VA hospital in Manila, and they had me in there for over a month. Well, Jeannie found out that I was in the hospital, and um, so when she got, she worked at a bank, and she put an advertising, advertised talking about the poor missionary about to die in the Philippines, need to come home, had six children, and she raised all the money to buy our plane tickets to come home, and came. They even got a rental house for us at first. They thought they would get me home from tech. I was, I've been 12 years in the Marines, over there three years. Hadn't been here uh, uh, hardly ever, but now they got me coming back. And uh, uh, some of them, my mother, I think, was kind of disappointed that uh, as soon as I got well a little bit, I hit the road, started trying to raise a little bit of support. Spent only nine months. We raised a little bit of support, went over, purchased a piece of property, started taking children off the streets. Now we have raised up over 300 children that we've raised the Lord has blessed us with. And uh, I often think about how that we could have just stayed there living by faith, trusting God. 
and God took care of us. But I don't know if we've been able to reach the children without the help of the churches, the Christians that has helped us over the years. And I praise the Lord for those that has helped us. And uh, and I thank you for giving me this opportunity to share with you tonight, Pastor. Let's take a moment and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for tonight. I thank you for the message that we heard. I, I thank you for Brother Ted and his wife, Miss Lagoya, the ministry they have. And I pray that you would continue to bless them as they've sacrificed to be over there. And God's worked and met. Over 300 kids have come through their ministry there. Lord, I pray that you would help them to be able to continue to do the work of God. I pray that you would help and encourage each and every one of us just to continue to be the, the Christian we need to be. I pray as we'll take a time of invitation, a time to pray. If you've worked on our hearts, Lord, that we would, we would deal with you. I thank you for my salvation. Thank you for saving me. Lord, I pray that if there's some that's lost, they get to settled. I pray that if there's some that doubt whether heaven is their home, I pray that they would put away that doubt. I thank you, Lord. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's have a time of invitation. If you want to pray in your seat, you're more than welcome to. If you want to pray at the altar, you spend time with God tonight. Thank God for what he's done. You're blessed. You're sitting in church today, air-conditioned church. We live in America. We are very blessed. Very blessed. Take time with God tonight.